0: Welcome to Campaign Chemistry, where we pick the brains of creative alchemists, business wizards, and marketing geniuses behind the world's greatest brands. I'm your host, Allison Weisbrot, editor of Campaign US, and my guests this week are from brand tech group, you and Mr. Jones, founder and CEO, David Jones, and partner, Emma Cookson. The brand tech group, which is not an agency, leans into distributed services and in-housing, powered by a technology platform, that connects brands to talent and influencers around the world. You and Mr. Jones also invests in technology companies that it thinks could play a key role in the future of marketing, including Pinterest, Niantic, and ad tech company, Beeswax. After taking a $260 million investment in January, you and Mr. Jones recently launched a media division and brought on former Mindshare CEO Nick Emery to run it. Hello, David and Emma. Hello, Hello. Alison. How are you?
1: I'm very good, thank you. How are you, Emma?
2: <laughs> I'm very good, David, also. How are
0: you, Alison? I'm great. Where are both of you calling from? David, why don't you start?
1: So, I am in New York. Um, at my What has been my home office for the last um, year, shared with my four kids. Nice.
2: Yep. Uh, but you're talking to me in London? Uh, I've been back based in London since two years ago. So I came back just in time for the pandemic, having been based in New York for 20 years before that.
0: Wow. All right. So we got two different time zones on here. Um, So let me kick it off with a question, David, that I'm sure you get all the time, which I know I've asked you multiple times, but I'm going to ask you again. Um, What is a brand tech group and why is you and Mr. Jones not an agency?
1: So if I, if I take the first, uh, first one of those first, um, in very simple terms, a brand tech group is a group that is expert in both technology and in branding. And I think the reason we created the company was the mobile phone came along, it disrupted all marketing. Um, you know, suddenly you had vast numbers of new channels, enormous different formats you needed for those new channels, access to unprecedented levels of data. And the simple fact that every single person on the planet had become a content creator. So, you know, when I joined the ad industry, the idea that um, someone, you know, an 18-year-old could make a TV commercial for Coke on the way to school was just not a thing. And there's an entire giant economy doing that. And I was hearing from all of our clients at the time, look, you know, the world's become really complicated. We need help. The agencies are great Uh, advertising and branding, but don't get tech. The tech companies are brilliant at tech, but we'll never objectively recommend recommend someone else. And what we need is someone who is expert in both brand and tech, and can help us navigate this new world. And hence, we launched the world's first brand tech group.
0: Cool. So talk about why it's not an agency and specifically um, why your business models is different.
1: So I think you know the, there's a number of reasons. The first one is, we don't do and we'll never do 90% of what agencies do. Um, so we are only doing you know, digital and tech, uh, we'll never do traditional advertising, traditional marketing, traditional media. Um, secondly, what we do, we do in a totally different and disruptive way. Um, so in an agency world, you have lots of people sitting inside a building and the client is paying a lot of money to access them and typically to make 30 you know, second TV commercials. In our model, we don't have people sitting inside buildings. So, you know, our disruptive model, for example, for content is about in housing. So in the in housing model, we have our people sitting inside the client organizations using our tech platform and our process. And we also then connect that into what we call people powered marketing. And that's the sort of Airbnb or Uber of content. So it's the tens of thousands of of brilliant content creators out there um, who can create amazing content. So that's you know so it's the way we are doing it is completely different. It's not people in an agency in a building that we're looking to sell to clients. It is uh, in housing connected into people-powered marketing. Thirdly, it's all built on a technology platform, and that allows us to to do you know and run businesses with way fewer people. And finally, we also very actively invest in technology. So we put you know 20 million into Pinterest four years ago, we were the very first external investors in Niantic who created Pokemon Go. So we have a a total sort of always on lens into the latest and greatest in technology. I mean, I could keep going, but I think that probably hopefully gives you a, a fairly clear idea of one, we don't do what they do. Two, where we overlap, we do it in a completely different, disruptive way. Three, it's all built and sits on top of a tech platform. And four, we're very active investors in technology companies to keep at the cutting edge of what's going on.
0: Right. And I definitely want to sort of dive into some of the some of the details on, on in-housing and, and content. Um, but first, um, I want to bring Emma in here. I know that, you know, Actually, both of you come from traditional agency background. David, Mm. you were running Havas. Emma, you were running BBH. Um, Emma, talk about, you know, what attracted you to you and Mr. Jones and and why you felt like this new model was going to be successful.
2: Yeah, um, yeah, it's interesting because I had left BBH before I met David and learned about you and Mr. Jones. And as you say, yeah, I come from that traditional agency world, the creative content side of it. And I had left it uh, largely because I saw very intractable challenges with the model. Uh, I'm the first to uh, say that I know there is still great talent in many of those companies. I came out of a company that had a lot of very, very talented people in it, but the fundamental infrastructure and model that those people are working within um it it doesn't work uh it doesn't work uh powerfully anymore just because of the way the world has changed for the reasons david just talked about the sheer pace and volume uh, and diversity of content that's needed the need for the data to be plugged in etc even before we got into media i'm sure we'll talk about media later um so look yeah i i um I left largely because I thought the model wasn't broken. Then when I uh, you know, met David, by pure coincidence and slightly amusing circumstances, which I won't get into. Um, and, um, and uh, he started to explain um, what he was building. Uh, I was actually working at McDonald's at the time with the chief marketing officer. And he was talking to her about the new model and what they're building. And, um, and I thought, Oh, well that actually makes sense. That sounds like that'll work. That sounds like that's got the right dimensions. Um, that brands are actually going to need, uh, and I was not planning to do anything like this. I was hoping to carry on living and working in the world of brands to become a head of brands and maybe a chief marketing officer, etc. Um, but then I thought, right, okay, that sounds like that's it's very very early days. I think David had uh, they'd invested in just Mo Film and maybe one other company. There were about four men and a dog involved at the centre of the uh, of the group at that stage. Um but I thought it just makes sense. So um maybe I should join and do that along with them. It was uh it was quite early and um possibly not as well thought through as it might have been.
0: <laughs> well, it seems like it was a good decision. You and Mr. I definitely Bill. think it was a good decision, yes. Maybe
2: not well thought through, but it turned out to be the right decision.
0: Yeah, I mean you're the company's now valued at over a billion dollars, which is um, pretty fast growth trajectory compared oh, to a long
1: time ago. Though I think we'd be hopefully be valued a lot more than that today.
0: <laughs> oh <laughs> if you'd like to share a number, you can uh, do so. But <laughs> I'm also going to have to hear about how you guys met. Now, by the way,
2: <laughs> I don't, don't worry. It's nothing, nothing that interesting. But uh, yeah, it it, was it, a, it well, was...
1: I'd gone to uh, present to uh, McDonald's, and Emma was in the meeting, um, and uh, I, I think she had just decided that she wasn't going to be staying, and I probably shouldn't say this, but we had just decided that she wasn't going to be staying permanently at McDonald's, and, and the person who I was presenting to turned, to turned to me and said, well, you know, and she may even want to join you because she doesn't want to join us.
2: <laughs> yeah, she was very angry with me at the time. So uh, it was, uh, was a sort of angry gesture like, well, you might want to no, talk I'm to her. Like, that's a great idea.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and here we are today. Yeah. Um, okay, so... I guess you know, sticking on this question of what are the holding comp- what is the future of the holding companies? I think you guys are both in sort of a position of having worked in them and now having you know running this company with a new type of model. Um, can they revive their business? Like what needs to change for them to be viable competitors? or is this just a structural decline?
1: It's a structural decline. I mean, I think um, you know, Emma, Emma touched on it. So it's not that everything that they do, is um irrelevant you know you know far from it and in fact I would argue that the you know if you're a a small brilliant creative shop if you're a Johannes Leonardo or a Wyden or a droga you know you have a very bright future because in a world where it's harder and harder to to get people's attention brilliant creativity is more important but the fundamental problem with the big groups is so much of them you know was having tens of thousands of people doing jobs that technology can do today and so it, it's not obviously it's not impossible that they could turn it round it's never happened in history before that you know a market leader is the market leader post uh, the disruption I would you know, argue they're kind of living through their Kodak moment. Um, you've got, you know, since we, I mean, when we launched, people like, David, you know, it's the big companies who are going to do this, not like, you know, new players, but $60 billion has come off the market cap of the big players since then. And, and that's not, you know, the COVID impact. That's the last, you know, three, four, five years. And I would even argue that they were pretty disingenuous in saying, oh, we had a terrible year last year because of COVID. I mean, that's, you know, if you are a new model digital and tech business, you had a great year last year. I mean, we grew 27%, 28% organically, if you've only got to look at the, the tech platforms and tech companies and their numbers. So if you were a new model digital and tech business, you actually had a very strong year last year. And the reason for their decline, I think on average they declined 9% last year, is because they've got big old-fashioned traditional legacy businesses not you know new model digital and tech enabled ones. So I would say, look, they're not going to go away. Um, but it, the the real issue is it is no longer a, a growing business. It is a you know flat or declining industry now, um, and that's never going to change. And you know it will just become less and less relevant each year with you know more and more being done online and less and less in the traditional world.
0: Hmm. Emma, do you have thoughts on that? I mean, the holding companies are you know, doing obviously more digital work, but I think you're right that there is a fundamental legacy business model underlying that. Um, curious, curious, what you think about David's thoughts there.
2: Yeah. And there is that universal phenomenon that David alluded to as well. It is very, very difficult to p- pivot any legacy business because of the drag factor of uh, legacy revenue and the necessary otherwise decline you'd have if you had to start cutting some of that stuff. Um, so yeah, look, it, it's it's it, it's just it's just really really hard to see how it can um, evolve back into aggressive growth and um, back into exciting times. So yes, there'll there'll be a long tail, but the shape of the model was built for a different set of circumstances, a different set of marketing needs, um, mm. built on a different set of assumptions, and. Again, it's just very, very hard, particularly when you're a public listed company, um, to do that scale of um, of that change. The right. cuts are very, yeah. very aggressive and, and difficult.
1: And I would say, regard, you know, forget what we think. I think their two biggest challenges: yeah. are that clients don't think they're the solution anymore, and even more importantly, talent doesn't think they're the solution anymore. If you are a brilliant, talented person, you're no longer going to go into the advertising industry. You're going to join, you know, TikTok or Snap or Facebook, or you're going to set your own company up, or you're going to go and join an influencer business, or you're going to go into one of the management consultants. You know, you're not going to go and join an ad agency
0: anymore, right? And that's, um, it's definitely all of these trends are accelerated because of COVID. Um, mm. And you know, I, I want to talk about you know Mo Film and some of the really interesting companies you have leaning into that talent, distributed talent model. But first, you know, you mentioned that you have a tech platform? Like what exactly is the tech platform underlying everything?
1: So basically, um, and part of the answer to this is also, uh, you know, tied into our new media division and all those kind of things. But at the moment we have a core technology platform that runs all of the content uh, side of the group. that runs everything from you know briefing to approvals to distribution it's also a dam very importantly it plugs into you know 250 other different um, tech uh, elements of the tech stack because every single you know pretty much every single brand or, or company on the planet has a different marketing technology stack um, and at the moment that sits inside our you know, our core content companies and obviously our vision is to be the best company in the world at connecting data, content and media in real time using technology. And so you know, we've just hired Will as our CTO, who's just brilliant and who was the CTO and, and founder of Integral Ad Science and then the CEO and founder of Amino. And he's come in to, you know, to take the tech platform to the next level and to plug it into our media capabilities and our data capabilities so it can run everything end to end.
0: So let's talk about your media capabilities. Um, what are your ambitions there? I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like I've asked you before if you'd ever get into media and you've said no. <laughs> so tell me about what's going <laughs> I on there. And, and I, I can, can, that.
1: You, I can take that. Is, I didn't say no. What I said is we'd never do traditional media.
0: Exactly. Okay, fair enough. I was
2: going to say exactly that. So yeah, we're not going to build a traditional media agency anymore than we've built a traditional creative or content agency. Um, yeah, I mean, the ambition here... and. Is um, well, we feel we've been a critical disruptor in the uh, content and creative side of the space of the uh, industry. Sorry, um, and we're going to bring that brand tech disruption now to the media side of the business, and it, it it is a big next step, and it does feel very timely. I would say we have got the question a lot from clients over you know the last couple of years. Are you getting into the media space? What are you going to do? How are you going to do it? And I think it's therefore it is very timely. There's a real sense of challenge in that space: the waste, the lack of transparency, the lack of speed, the often not being very connected to you know the really critical commercial outcomes. So it does feel very timely. Uh, look, the top top line summary is going to be um, it's going to be our media offering, um, which Nick is building, the division he's he's running is going to be all about giving clients back control over their media. And the three um, dimensions of that, the three planks of that, are going to be uh, transparency and technology and in-housing. So those are the three elements, if you like, by which we are going to put brands back in control of their media. Um, You won't be surprised, obviously, given the rest of the group and the history um, to hear that point about. In-housing, of course, in-housing of media decision-making is a massive trend just as much as in-housing of content and creative is. So um, part of our offering will be enabling clients to take better control of some or all of their media data execution, strategy, etc., via in-housing. So that'll be part of it. Um, of course, brand tech, uh, there will be critical uh, integration rooted in technology. Uh, we're a brand tech group. Uh, so, technology will be central to the delivery. And there will be different um, ways and scales of uh, ways that brands can interact with our media offering. So, But as I say, in-housing, uh, in- enabling of in-housing media decision-making, some or all of that. Uh, technology is a key enabler of getting things right and then a fundamental belief in transparency and the critical uh, need to deliver transparency for clients. So those are sort of the dimensions. Um, And as I say, there will be different uh, sort of products and offerings uh, because obviously not every client has exactly the same uh, breadth of need, Um, but that's what it's going to look like. Uh, And you're going to see us, I mean, as I say, I think it's pretty seminal. You're going to see us moving quite fast. There'll be more announcements in this space um in terms of putting more of the jigsaw pieces together it's a, it's a big priority for us now
1: obviously, awesome. connecting it into the content and the data pieces we think is you know something yeah. that is critically important
0: right and clients today they want that integration right because content and media are so closely coupled together um you know you mentioned that you're not going to to media the way the holding companies have, I'm assuming we're not going to see you guys in the upfronts. <laughs> no, look, I,
1: I think we, you know we everything we have done um, from day one, and that will continue, is digital only. Um, now, you know, uh, one day um, all media you know, television will all be bought programmatically. So maybe if we're speaking five years from now, and we're doing some TV or saying, David, you told me you'd never do traditional media. say, like, well, no, actually what happened was technology brought traditional TV our way rather than the other way around. But, you know, we will never set out to do anything that is not digital.
0: Got it. And there's been, um, you know, the in-housing programmatic and data and analytics trend has been going on for a while. Is that mostly where you're seeing this service fitting in and then does you and mr jones offer support for clients who need help with that is that sort of the model you're looking at
1: yeah Yeah. i mean i think taking you know we have uh the world's number one company in in in-housing content oliver they're you know doing an amazing job and growing like crazy and i think we look at that we see how Happy and delighted, all the clients are. And we sort of simplistically go, you know, there are a number of reasons why actually in housing media and data makes even more sense than in housing content. Um, there's not very many people who are expert at doing it. Uh, uh, and we believe that we can build something that delivers for our clients. But as Emma said, We've actually had clients come to us and say, look, you know, you're doing such a brilliant job. Can't you help us with our media, too? Um, Mm -hmm. A lot of this comes out of a a demand from our clients to do it.
0: Right. And I know that, um, you you know, you brought up Oliver, which has Mm -hmm. which does in-housing content for brands like Unilever um, is probably the biggest client there, maybe. Um, But (laughs) just assuming that they're always the biggest. Um, But yeah. How do you see, like, what's the role of the service provider, or I won't use the word agency because I know you're not an agency, but what is the role of the service provider in that relationship as more and more things start to get brought in-house? And do you see that pendulum swinging back outwards anytime in the future?
2: I think um, I can take that. David, you got that? We certainly don't see any signs of the pendulum pendulum swinging away from in-housing i think it's worth clarifying um how the oliver IG model works um and is so powerful and i think that is going to answer your question alison which is that um there's still a a perception in some places amongst some brand clients particularly actually in north america more than in in europe and, and in latin america too that there's a binary choice between either i hire external agencies Or I build and run an internal agency. Um, Or obviously I can combine them, but those two things. What um, our in housing model does is we design, scope, build, and run proprietary in house studios, agencies, teams, whatever you want to call them, for brands. So it's a sort of third way. We build. We design, and they're all really, really different. For Unilever, the, we scoped a design and built the U-Studio uh, capability, the U-Studio studios, um, and we run them. We hire the teams. We motivate the teams. We run the processes. We uh, manage the peaks and troughs of demand. We do all of that, thus making uh, taking away all the... It's very all the difficulty. It's very hard if it's not your specialism to um, to run and build your own in-house agency. The benefits of having one are really, really hard to avoid uh, and not want in today's world. But what our model does is essentially, as I say, design, scope, and run that for clients. Um, so that uh, it works really, really well. It's really tailored to their unique needs, and of course, it uh, doesn't entail a huge number of fixed costs um, for the brands as well. And and it's again, it's it's very hard to imagine that there's not going to be increasing demand for that capability.
0: Right. I mean, there is definitely nuance there. So, what exactly about that makes it in-house? Are they on-site? Are they employed by the client?
2: Yep, they're not employed by the client. They are. They are usually, although not uh, exclusively, there is a a critical component in house. Uh, obviously, over the last year, that's been different. But in fact, the way the model works is quite complex and quite multifaceted. So that there is a core in house, literally on site team, and then there are regional hubs which uh, of brand immersed folks which means that the team can scale up and down according to peaks and troughs of demand. And there are centres of excellence that can be drawn in uh, and brought on board for temporary specialist needs. And there's offshoring capability and resources, which again can be brought in uh, and and scaled up or scaled down. So it is a a quite sophisticated uh, operational model uh, and not at all what it's often... I think mistaken for just a simple, like in-housing means taking some people and putting them in a client's office on-site. It right. almost never works um, because of the inflexibility of it, because those folks are not trained to work in that way. They haven't been recruited to have the right attitude and uh, capabilities to work in that model. And the whole system and flexibility that is needed. To, this was my big learning when I got to know the whole model when they came into uh, the group it's so much more of a, of a complex multidimensional model than just take some people, put them on site in the client's office, uh, right. which, is, which is really not very, very uh, successful.
0: And so how do the clients pay for it? Um, the mean,
2: model, oh, go on, David, go.
1: No, I was going to say, uh, you know, a combination, I mean, each, uh, neutral retainer or, you know, model is is slightly different, but they all are a combination of uh, project fees, um, fees per unit. So there might be a price for a particular TikTok video um, and, you know, technology fees for the the SaaS platform.
0: Got it. So no FTEs in sight.
1: (laughs) I mean, look, there's, you know, the. Oliver have built and run over 200 uh, of the, I mean, for client for 200 different clients. So like if we're doing 50 for a client, I'm counting that as one in the 200. So it might, it might be completely uh, unfair to say there's none, but that's not the model.
0: Got it. So um, another interesting company that you own is Mofilm, which I think really, Um, The trend of this distributed talent network across the world really took off this year with COVID. I think I wrote maybe 10 stories about (laughs) talent networks that launched this year. Um, Talk about how you see the future of um, distributed work in in the creative field um, moving forward. And do you feel like there's more competition in that space now for talent? Talk a little bit about what what you're seeing in that space.
2: Yeah, I think the um, the early dialogue around that space, I think is was interesting because it was a lot focused on cost effectiveness. So in the early days of, you know, we call it people-powered marketing, those dispersed networks of creators, there was a lot of, hey, you can tap into this enormous uh, talent pool. You don't have to pay those big agency fees. G- you know, give us your brief. We can send it to lots of people. You'll get lots of responses. Some of them will be amazing, um, et cetera, et cetera. And it is true. There is a cost efficiency to using this sort of model sometimes. It's also true, as you just alluded to, Alison, that in the particular unique circumstances of COVID, these dispersed models really came into their own because you had uh, content creators. We did lots at MoFilm where people could essentially from home be their own cast and crew and uh, could still create content without being able to go into, you know, companies and office environments, etc. But I would say that the Really powerful dimensions of the future of this model center on the linked concepts of um, diversity and authenticity. So, very, very relevant both of them to brands nowadays. So, when you've got like MoFilm, MoFilm was essentially a community of all sorts of creators, particularly filmmakers, all over the world, not just in all, lots of countries, but in loads of cities and loads of passion groups and loads of communities. So, you've got LGBT uh, community uh, filmmakers. You've got first-time parent filmmakers. You've got graffiti artist filmmakers. You've got Latinx filmmakers. You've got yeah. You know, there's you can tap into uh, as a brand these uh, communities um, to get creative talent. And for companies and brands who are taking seriously the uh, desire to diversify their creative and production um, resources, that is golden it's not easy to do in the traditional model uh but it's very easy to do i mean we had a recent example um target hired mofilm to create content supporting they have a a big program called black beyond measure where which supports their black customers and associates and partners uh and they wanted to create film content celebrating this and um mofilm was able to put a crew together not just you know okay the talent comes from the black community and the director, but everybody uh, that's involved, the sound engineers, the lighting people, et cetera, et cetera, the whole um, end-to-end uh, thing. So you get that authentic black gaze coming through in the work, amazing work, and uh, and uh, an authenticity of approach as well as authenticity of content that is just right. So it's a model that delivers against diversity, a super, super high priority. And it's a model that, through that, delivers against uh, incredibly authentic content, um, which tends to be often more relatable and uh, more compelling, uh, particularly to certain interest groups and, and passion groups. So, for me, the the, the very bright future there is um, is along that dimension, you know, particularly. Yeah. And That's, I think, and
1: you build on that with you know collectively who are an amazing influencer business who are part of the yeah. group. I'm not sure whether they're the world's largest. They're certainly one of the top three globally. Um, and just the ability to create amazingly powerful, authentic, and, and diverse content uh, that these companies have is spectacular. And I think, you know, I really think we're still at the very start of this movement. And let's not forget that, you know, 10 years ago, you know, you um, People hadn't had that much expertise. And I'm by people, I'm just meaning, you know, everyday people are creating content. They're now amazing at it. And you know, I would argue that you're much better having your your content created by a twenty-two-year-old who is obsessively on TikTok all day than you are by having it done by a, you know, a fifty-two-year-old white male creative director in the corner office who's who's never been on TikTok.
0: Right. Well, you're making a really good point there, which is that um, advertisers are looking for A diversity, which, which Emma brought up, um, and tapping into networks like this offers that in a much more global, uh, distributed way. And they're also looking for people who understand how to use these platforms and who live on these platforms and have, you know, authentic connections with audiences, AKA influencers and creators. Um, so there's been this like paradigm shift where you almost want your audience making the content right for your brand. What does this mean for creative agencies?
1: Look, I think you're going to, you're still going to have, you know, brilliant creative agencies with a very strong role, um, you know, in creating an overarching brand idea and creative idea. I don't think that goes away. And as, as I said earlier, I think that potentially becomes more and more important. It's just the what I would call the sort of non-added value, expensive, creative just disappears. And if you've got ten thousands, tens of thousands of people doing that, as most of the big global networks do have, that's not got a very bright future.
0: Mm. You also mentioned um, before, earlier in our conversation, that talent doesn't want to work at the big agencies anymore. Do you find that um, creative people do you want to be in this more distributed flexible kind of model um it seems to me like a better fit for creativity but i'm curious what you're seeing on the talent front
2: yeah definitely and i think it also comes back to we it's funny i thought you were going to go to a different place for that question Alison, because we get that question sometimes as well on um, the in-housing model as well uh, do you know, Do creative folks really want to work in in-house teams as opposed to traditional agencies? Mm. And they really do increasingly. Uh, and partly I think it's just at a really simple level, like people can tell which way the wind is blowing. They can, there is a, I hear from folks I know still within traditional I- industry, many of whom I really like, really respect, but there is a palpable tension and difficulty and a sense that this is, a challenged model and space which is not conducive to one feeling confident and able to do stuff and what we hear a lot as well in the in-housing space so I'll come back to the dispersed thing is but in the in-housing spaces that the depth of trust as well as the pace and volume of work that goes through those teams is extremely motivating particularly the creative people who if there's one nightmare above all others it's just that not much of your work gets done and out there and increase you know in an in-house model typically that just doesn't happen like they're they're typically much closer to um their clients they're, they're highly trusted there's a lot of stuff that needs to get done and it gets done and it gets approved and it gets out there and as I say, then there's this macro sense of mm-hmm. this is where the future is headed. So I'm on the side of the future, which feels more motivating to almost everyone, of course. Um, and then the dispersed space, yeah, absolutely. There are some folks for whom that um, uh, flexible and open uh, model works super well, and um, they, you know, they love to be part of it. And then there are others who uh, it won't be their fit. That's fine as well. Um, but certainly, I mean I'm you know, obviously, the younger you go in generations, the the more easy it is to find folks who are uh, at ease in that model and, and love the variety it brings. And also to honestly love the fact that it just leans into their, the talents that they have, as David was just saying, with new platforms, especially, that they are you know particularly um, valued and they have a leading edge capability in it. I mean it's very, very hard to get a obviously a super super elite. TikToker, tocker who is um, over the age of 40.
0: <laughs> Maybe even over the age of 30. <laughs>
2: exactly. Maybe over the age of you know, 19. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, well, speaking of sort of like looking into the future and making some some prescient bets on, on the new model, um, David, you talked about investing in Pinterest, Niantic, You've also invested in ad tech firms like Beeswax, which went on to sell to Comcast. How do you decide where to make these investments?
1: So, I sort of, I guess, there's like an overall uh, kind of four guiding principles, which are number one, is it a great business in a vertical we want to play in? Number two, you know, do we like the people and do we think you know there's a good cultural fit? number three do we think the financials make sense and that you know mo- on the minority investment side most of the companies we're investing in are loss making and even sometimes heavily loss making companies but they're doing really interesting stuff and finally to that point you know is this a technology that we think our brand partners are going to get excited by so when we turn around and say hey by the way we've invested in you know Niantic you should meet these guys so they go oh my god brilliant yes please um, and so those are sort of the four general uh, you know criteria and then I I think a lot of it is about our beliefs in, you know, where the future of, of technology and where the future of technology attached to marketing is going. And, you know, a lot of that is subjective. And I think the big point I always make is often you, you don't know, because, you know, if you go back to the arrival of the, of the iPhone and how unbelievably dismissive the then CEO of Microsoft was about it, Actually at the time, most people agree with him because it was just like a phone with a, a music player and a camera. And what's made it amazing is the whole ecosystem of apps and the platform that's grown up a, around it. And I think that's gonna be the case with, with all new technologies, but we're super interested in AI and have multiple investments in AI. We backed AR very early on, you know, we're back in the summer of 2015 when Niantic spun out of Google, I think we were the first external investor and we've invested in every round. Um, and we always felt that AR had a lot more potential than VR because everyone had the device in their hand. Um, you know, I think we've we've just we've done some really interesting investments recently uh, in the gaming space. Um, you know, big believers in uh, social commerce and live. Think everything that's going on with you know virtual cultures and and the metaverse is fascinating. Um, NFTs are you know. I, I almost—I think—we're at the sort of Apple Newton or Palm Pilot stage, where <laughs> everything out there's a bit crap. Um, but let's some- just be
2: clear, David. We couldn't get through uh, an interview like this without saying NFTs. Otherwise, yes,
1: we wouldn't absolutely. be able to hold on our heads. <laughs> yeah. but, but I think you know what you tend to see happen with these things is you're know, like you know the hype curve just goes off the charts. Um, and, and then suddenly everyone goes, OK, this is never going to be a thing. It dies. And then two or three years later, someone actually does something really interesting. But so I, I think, it, you know, we, we probably look at 20 or 30 companies a week um, and get to see, you know, through a lot of the people we're connected to just amazingly interesting tech. And, you know, sometimes we'll go, oh, my God, you know, we don't think they'll actually be the one, but someone's going to do something incredible with this technology. Um, and so it's really just about trying to make sure, you know, a, a lot of our clients view us as trusted partners they can come to and go, all right, what should we be doing in this space? And in fact, I've got to talk on this to one of our big clients next week, you know, but just talk about where you see it headed, what should we be doing now, what's hype, what isn't. Um, but I, I think we, we, we always look at these things as well in terms of um, both immediate genuine use cases and future ones so if you take ai for example you know we're investors in lc who are using ai to do media planning better and they've got lots of great clients and they're doing it and it's brilliant we're also investors in ai foundation who can basically build you know mind twins or a a digital version of you that looks like you, sounds like you, and can have this conversation independently of you being there. You know, clearly that's not going to be a thing for a brand in the next month, but it's highly likely to be massive in three or four years.
0: Mm, Interesting. Very black mirror. (laughs) Um, So another, I know we're running out of time here, but I wanted to ask about um, your own talent and how you're managing people, um, we're all talking about going back to the office soon, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion in the workplace has been such a big topic for agencies in the past year. I know you guys have a little bit of a different talent model because of the distributed nature of a lot of the companies you own, but how are you thinking about this? Um, and you know, both of these issues as we sort of head back to more of an in-person work environment.
1: Um, you want to do the, the working one and I'll cover off diversity, Emma, or the other way around?
2: Yeah. Whichever. Oh, absolutely. We can do it diff- And Look, you know, it, it, it is different. I mean, you'll, you'll expect this to answer us. It's different by location, it's somewhat different to some degree by company as well. Um, so, generally, um, the moves back to physical working are being handled carefully on a non enforced um uh, supportive basis so most of the com- uh, companies in most places are increasingly uh, welcoming back people into physical environments and most of them are saying that they have employees who welcome that and want to be back although probably not all the time so it's that classic sort of um, gentle slide back um, into the office and um, Yeah, it really does feel quite week to week, month to month, I have to say. Um, And then obviously, I say that with a skew to a Western European and North American um, zone, uh, because the picture is very different. If I start to talk about some of the other markets in different areas of Asia or Latin America, for example. Um,
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot of our back offices in India, and they clearly have just been hit so hard. Been, you know, China in a very different place. Um, if you look at the UK and France, you know they're you know 22 miles apart, but both in very different situations today. Yeah. And I think sitting in Manhattan, it's easy. Oh, it's great. Everything's opening up, and everyone's vaccinated. And then you talk to people in Europe, it's like, oh no, no, you can't get a vaccine here. So mm. I, you know, it's 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 complicated when you're running a global company because. countries are in very different situations.
0: Right. Well, thinking about the future of work, I mean, you guys have really leaned into the future of of marketing and the future of this business. Like, where do you see the future of the workplace going?
1: Look, I mean, you know, I I think um, uh, to just cover off a bit more what Emma said, um, I believe if you do not give your talent the ability to work flexibly, you're going to lose them simple as that you know you've got you've got some of the biggest and best technology companies in the world saying you no longer need to come into the office at all anymore (laughs) you know and if you're saying we need we want you in at 8 a.m on a monday and you can't leave till 6 p.m on a friday you know it's pretty obvious the choice that people are going to make so i I think we're going to end up going back to a really interesting hybrid model i think it's going to be fascinating to see what happens with travel um because i think we've all learned that you know you actually can do a 20, 25 minute meeting when it's on Zoom. But if somebody flies halfway across the world to meet with you, everybody feels like it needs to be at least an hour. Otherwise you can't possibly make someone lose two days. So I think we're gonna, we're gonna, you know, head back into a world where hopefully it's got a much better balance and what i mean by that is it's not going to be all work from home and remote and zoom but likewise it's not all going to be everybody commuting at the same time sitting in the same traffic jam to get into the office where quite frankly they actually didn't need to be that day so i i can envisage a model where companies are saying look we want you in two to three days a week let's try and have everybody in on the same day so we can do all the physical in-person stuff when everyone's in the company and you know Three days of the week, you basically work from where you want.
2: Mm, got it. Um, in just, all of in all of that, we're acutely aware, as a leadership team, of the danger of transposing our own experience onto others. All that data that came out—I think it's a big Microsoft survey, wasn't there? There've been others, just showing that you know the challenges that are faced have been faced through this last year are more acute and more complex. The younger you go. Um, the less senior and well-paid you go, um, the more you've got children, etc. So there's just a whole dimension you have to be super, super careful about really accommodating folks right. whose living circumstances and um, whose general setup means that, you know, the, the, the ease of working from home is not it's not necessarily easy at all.
1: Um, right. Now, I do want to come back to the diversity question so you don't yes. think we, we, we dodge that. So, look, I mean, I would just be very honest with you and say that, you know, last year, particularly being based in, in New York, was a big wake-up call, I think, for, for us. Um, mm. You know, I, I sort of sat back and looked at what we had built over the the five years, and I was like, you know, I thought we, we'd built such an amazing company on, on so many levels, and the one that I felt we'd done, you know, a much worse job in was the whole area of diversity, but very specifically racial diversity. So we created our DEI board. Um, we have have had a, a terrific work stream going on with the DEI board, and we deliberately called it a board because um, it's, it's the only board we have in the company other than the one that has our investors on it. Um, we put together our DEI plan to set about addressing this. We also kind of set a benchmark for the company We're you know, Uh, Just over 4,000 people now, but 60% of the company uh, is female, 20% is people of color, 40% of people at senior levels and above are female but only 10% of people at senior level and above are people of color. And so what's clear when we look at that data is that, you know, that's the area we really need to be doing much more on. 50% of actually our partners um, are female, male, female split. So I think, we, you know, we have companies like collectively where the entire C-suite is female, Moform where the entire C-suite is female. So I think, you know, we, we've done a, a pretty decent job on, on gender, Diversity, but not on racial diversity, and it's a, it's an absolutely key focus for us. Um, And I think I also realised that you know, because in my charity, One Young World, we do an enormous amount of work in that space. I was probably thinking that well, that counts in the office too, but it doesn't. And so you know, if you if you were to say to me, you know. Do, do I think we kind of built the market-leading market company in terms of delivering tech-enabled marketing? Absolutely. Did I think we got the market leader in terms of the, the diversity and particularly racial diversity of that company? No, and, and that's the thing we're really focusing on.
0: So what are some of your specific goals? Is it more people of color and leadership um, hiring more talent?
1: Yeah. exactly it's all of that it's our suppliers and you know our supplier base it's it's a it's a very comprehensive and concrete end-to-end plan the trainings involved so we had the first training session with all the the c-suite of all of the the companies. So yeah, I mean we, we as you can imagine it extends from everything to senior talent to recruitment to training to you know the supplies we're using to investment and how we're investing. And in last year and ahead of this, you know, we, last year we did more, you know, the majority of our minority investments were actually in diverse businesses and whether that's Black Tag that has two brilliant black founders or Good Loop that has a a female founder. Um, But I I think you need to be very deliberate about this because if you, if you just say, no, no, we care about it, but don't actually put in place concrete, tangible plans and goals and actions, you, you know, you will not progress.
0: Mm. Yeah, well. I think that is a a strong point to end on. And um, I'm excited to see what you guys do in the space. And thank you so much for joining me today.
1: It's a pleasure. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you very much, Allison.
0: That's all the time we have this week. Thanks for tuning in to Campaign Chemistry, and we'll see you next time.